0: Greetings and welcome to the Asian American and Asian Research Institute's Friday Lecture Series Online Edition. Uh, My name is Anthony Wong, Program Coordinator of the Institute. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for joining us on this uh, beautiful Friday evening for a very interesting talk that we'll have from uh, Chen Xing Han on her book, uh, Be the Refuge, Raising the Voices of Asian American Buddhists, uh, published in early 2021. Uh, Be the Refuge is both critique and celebration, calling out the erasure of Asian-American Buddhists while uplifting the complexity and nuance of their authentic stories and vital thriving communities. Uh, Chenxing Han is a Bay Area-based writer whose publications have appeared in uh, Buddha Dharma, Journal of Global Buddhism, Lions Roar, Pacific World, Tricycle, among others. Uh, Han holds a BA from Stanford University and an MA in Buddhist uh, studies from the Graduate Theological Union. After studying uh, chaplaincy at the Institute of uh, Buddhist Studies in Berkeley, California, she worked in spiritual care at a nearby community hospital in Oakland, Uh, Be the Refuge, Raising the Voices of Asian American Buddhists is her first book. Uh, congratulations on that, and please welcome Changsheng Han.
1: Thanks so much, Anthony. Uh, it's such an honor to be able to speak here at the Ari Arikuni site. I think it was actually someone who was part of an Asian American Buddhist group on the East Coast who told me about this mailing list, and then I sort of get New York envy every time I read it because of just all the amazing talks and events that are going on. And thank you to everyone who's joined us this evening. I know it's Friday after a long day. Um, I wish I could see your faces, but I also know that sometimes after a long week, it's nice to kind of just turn off the video and relax at home. I hope you are enjoying a good meal or just having a good restful evening. So thank you for tuning in. So for today, I thought I would share some images and share a little bit as I was invited to do to talk about be the refuge. And since the book has been out, um, I guess it's been a year and nine months now. I thought I would talk a little bit about the book, but also perhaps spend about half the time just sharing a little bit about some of the, I guess I'd call them the karmic repercussions of the book, some exciting things that have happening, that have been happening more recently. Oh, I really wish I could see all of you, but um uh where to begin? Well, I thought Today, actually, being kind of a very special day, I would begin with a dear friend, Aaron Lee. So exactly five years ago today, Aaron passed away from cancer. If I'm not mistaken, actually, I think Aaron's parents are here on the call, Naomi and Al, so I um, just want to thank them and acknowledge them for being such extraordinary people and raising such an extraordinary well, one of one of their three children but Aaron Lee was truly an extraordinary person and I only had a chance to get to know him really just for a few years and when I first actually got to know him it was through as the author of this blog called the Angry Asian Buddhist so as you can see from this picture of Aaron he was actually not someone who, who i consider considered to be a particularly angry person. He was an incredibly loving and giving and generous person, but also incredibly passionate. And when he saw the ways that Asian Americans were in many ways erased from our understandings of American Buddhism, both historically and in the present day, and when he thought about the repercussions this had, particularly for young people who might've been raised Buddhist or who are interested in Buddhism, young Asian Americans, but who are hearing narratives like this religion was superstitious, or there are, you know, I think as other people in this speaker series, have talked about a long history of Asian Americans being seen, not just as a racial threat, but also a religious threat, a heathen other. So I think of a lot of Aaron's work in the community, including his work, writing the Angry Asian Buddhist blog as really an act of love for the community and an act of love for the next generation, paving the ground, trying to ask what kind of future do we want to give to this next generation? So Aaron started this blog in 2009. And even before then, he'd been blogging with friends. And increasingly, he was just asking questions about why is it that if the majority of American Buddhists are of Asian heritage, why aren't we seeing them in the media, in these mainstream Buddhist magazines? He was actually one of the first young people I saw who was talking about these issues. Aaron himself was mixed race, Ashkenazi Jewish and Toysanese Chinese. And he wasn't actually, he was a little bit, um, you wouldn't have known this reading his blog per se. And part of the reason was actually very much for reasons, I think, that were prudent as someone with a full-time job elsewhere. At one point he was in school. He didn't really want his public, you know, his true identity to be known. But I think also there was a power in the angry Asian Buddhist being a pseudonym. Aaron always felt anyone could be the angry Asian Buddhist. You didn't have to be Asian. You didn't have to be Buddhist, but that some of the patterns that he was pointing out was actually relevant More broadly and that people could understandably feel upset about this and then importantly take some kind of action in collect in sort of a collective action. So fast forward to 2012 and maybe. Maybe before I go here, I should say a little bit about my own background. So I was born in Shanghai, but I grew up in the US. I came here when I was four years old. My parents raised me atheist, which is not uncommon as people who've survived the Chinese Cultural Revolution who lived through that period. And I would say I probably always had spiritual yearnings, but it was really in a gap year before college and in college itself, coming to the Bay Area, that I started getting interested in Buddhism. So I'd grown up in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area, as well as the Seattle, Washington area. And through a sort of circuitous set of circumstances that I won't go into at the current moment, In 2012, I found myself in a master's program in Buddhist studies at the Institute of Buddhist Studies, which is the oldest Buddhist seminary in the U.S. Its roots begin in 1949, and those roots go back even more deeply into the 19th century when Japanese-American priests of the Jodo Shinshu tradition or Shin tradition, uh, as we say in shorthand, when they came to the U.S. and began to lay the groundwork for establishing what we now know as the Buddhist churches of America, a network of temples across the U.S. So as I was trying to think about what to write for my thesis, I was reminded of this 2012 Pew Forum research that noted American Buddhists are very much a minority. That's in this sort of right column here. You can see Buddhist percentage of the general public, maybe only about 1%. And actually, even if you take Asian-Americans as a subset, we are, what, maybe about 6% of the U.S. population now. Of those, maybe only about a seventh are Buddhist, according to these estimates. But I think if we looked at just American Buddhists, this small minority, the surprising statistic in this uh, Pew Forum's estimate was that two-thirds are of Asian heritage. And what struck me, and I think, you know, Aaron slash the angry Asian Buddhist as well, was that that wasn't what was the mainstream representation. The mainstream representation seemed to focus predominantly on white converts and white meditators. In some ways, maybe this is even more so with the rise of secular mindfulness. Buddhist magazines at the time, Buddha Dharma, Shambhala Sun, which is now Lions, or a Tricycle, I would flip through the covers and it seemed like I would just see Buddha statues or beloved and revered Asian masters like His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, or here, the now late Venerable Thich Nhat Hanh. But Asian Americans were sort of few and far between. And I suppose that's not surprising, right, if even in this May we have surveys saying that 58% of Americans can't even name a single famous Asian American. Well, how much more so for something like Buddhism that seems to be in some ways so much more obscure or so much more of a minority But I guess part of what drew me to this topic is that Buddhism, even if Buddhists maybe only make up about one percent of the U.S. population, the impact of Buddhism, of mindfulness of things associated with Buddhism is actually quite broad. I think, you know, I noticed the way mindful that word has sort of crept into everyday uses, everyday use sort of everywhere, not to mention on you know grocery shelves and, and the kinds of healthy foods that we eat, if you will. So part of my research, as part of my research, reading these popular representations, as well as more scholarly representations, I kept coming across this trope of two Buddhisms that seem to posit there's two kinds of Buddhism in the U.S. There's a Buddhism of Western converts and of Asian immigrants. And here you'll see just some of the adjectives I noticed that were being used to describe these two camps. And the more I reflected on these two descriptions, which are really meant to be more sociological, they're not really meant to pass value judgment, but it disturbed me how easy it would be to decide which of these groups is supposed to be more scientific. Is it the white meditator or the Asian chanting, bowing practitioner, the immigrant Buddhist, as it were, Never mind that most of us are immigrants to this country. So I felt quite perplexed about where to put myself as someone who was not raised Buddhist, but gradually over time really came to realize that or to realize a deep affinity for Buddhism and to become more comfortable identifying as a Buddhist, I just couldn't quite figure out where did I fit. And the more I thought about it, the more two Buddhisms felt like just one Buddhism and its Asian inferior foil. So I'm being a little hard on the two Buddhism trope. And I think actually there's still like any trope, like any story Always some truth to it, but as Chimamanda Chie reminds us, you know there can be a danger to telling only one story. And I was really interested in finding more stories from Buddhist Asian America, as Aaron liked to call us. I remember he wrote this really fantastic blog post in 2014 called "The Stereotypology of Asian American Buddhists," and he just talked about how frustrating it was to see representations of Asian American Buddhists reduced to an Oriental monk figure. Jane E. has a really excellent book, Virtual Orientalism, examining this trope more broadly in popular culture. And then if we weren't sort of these enlightened asexual Oriental monk figures, then there's this superstitious immigrant trope. Oh, they only chant, they only bow. And honestly, I've heard some of these rhetorics within Asian communities themselves. So I think that's important to acknowledge as well. But these sorts of notions that there is a kind of meditation is the end all and be all certain very specific type of seated meditation, which of course would lead me to wonder, but why isn't chanting and bowing also very much a kind of meditation, a kind of practice, but more, more importantly, what about ethics? What about generosity? What about other foundations of Buddhist practice that are very much in my experience, I found so embodied in just the daily rhythms of temples here in the U.S. as well as in Asia. And then Aaron being Aaron, who's always had a bit of a sense of humor and a bit of, provocateur in him as well, I'd say, also coined this notion of a banana Buddhist, banana being a racial slur used for Asians to say they are yellow on the outside, but white on the inside. In other words, only Asian by appearance. And he also pushed back against these depictions, like, oh, Asians are just Like white Buddhists or white convert Buddhists, they just happen to be Asian, happen to look Asian as if culture was just a baggage that we could shed or merely skin deep and not something that forms us into being. So it was really, I remember Aaron wrote this blog post that said, you know, if you really want to learn more about Buddhist Asian America, go out there, talk to people. And that's exactly what I decided to do for my master's thesis to interview young adult Asian American Buddhists. And I defined those terms quite loosely because I was sort of afraid no one would talk to me. Um, I did snowball sampling, which is a fancy way just to say, I asked people for recommendations and sort of snowballed from there. And I was very greedy. <laughs> I once figured if I got a captive audience, I would just ask them about, you know, all sorts of things, cultural and religious background and their Buddhist practices and beliefs and the communities and perceptions of Buddhism in America. And their responses to different viewpoints of Asian American Buddhists in retrospect, probably too much. So my poor interviewees were very gracious and really put up with all my questions. These interviews were an hour and a half to five and a half hours long. And I ended up doing 26 of them in person, predominantly in the Bay Area, also some in Southern California. And in fact, there were so many people who were interested that I ended up adapting the interview protocol to email and interviewing another 63 people, and many of these people have later become friends or become colleagues, people whom I work with and just email or, you know, will hang out with. So the journey from master's thesis to book was quite a long one, and I won't go into too much detail here tonight since we don't have that much time, but quite serendipitously in 2014 when I graduated with my thesis and felt I had all of this material and it seemed to have expanded the bounds of a master's thesis, Ruth Ozeki was on tour for her book, A Tale for the Time Being. And Ruth Ozeki is a very beloved author who is Um, half Japanese, so Asian American, and she's a Buddhist priest, although I think she sort of resists being categorized into subgenres for her writing. But she came and gave a talk and was very kind afterwards when I went up to her afterwards and asked, I have this thesis and I'd like to turn it into a book. And she later talked with me on the phone and one piece of advice really stuck out so much so that I write about it in the book. But she said, you know, make it an account of your curiosity and really write yourself into the book, which I think goes against the grain of a lot of what we can learn in academia, though I'm glad to see trends like decolonizing ethnography and other trends that really encourage researchers ourselves to be more transparent about where we're coming from, our positionality. And in the case of this book. My first draft was 90,000 words and lots of footnotes. And I spent a lot of time being angry about two Buddhisms, which meant I spent a lot of time arguing with a very small subset of white male scholars. And it just Wasn't really working. Um, And I resisted Ruth's advice for a long time. But then something else that happened after I graduated in 2014 was that I spent a year working as a hospital chaplain in a residency program, primarily on an oncology unit. And so that kind of training, I would say it's about many things, but one thing it's very much about is about a kind of deep listening. And actually my second book coming out next April, the title is one long listening, a memoir of grief, friendship, and spiritual care. And so I think that training and deep listening very much ended up informing this book. So I, I, Listen to the recordings of those interviews over and over and over. I transcribed them until I got Carpal Tunnel. I read them over and over again. You know, I met with people and asked them specific questions. And eventually what came together was this book in its four parts, Trailblazers, Bridge Builders, Integrators, and Refuge Makers. And these titles were, for me, an alternative to thinking about us as oriental monks or superstitious immigrants or banana Buddhists. So I will briefly touch into each of these sections um, in the next few minutes, and then I'll transition a bit into talking about some of, as I said, the karmic effects of the book since it's been out. So in part one of the book, Trailblazers, I really focus on the experiences of multi-generation, multi-gen Asian American Buddhists. And for those I interviewed, these were primarily people who were Japanese American, though not exclusively, somewhere mixed ethnicity or partially Japanese or not at all. And these are people who have been... Buddhist in this country for multiple generations. And I want to acknowledge Noel Alumit, who's now uh, one of the associate editors at Lions Roar Magazine, for really, in his interview, helping me to come up with this way to organize my book, to remind us how generation is such an important lens for understanding, I think, the American experience for understanding any experience, really. And generation, I think, is multivalent. We can talk about, are we millennials or Gen Z or baby boomers? etc that kind of historical generation we can also talk about as commonly is done in the asian american community what generation we are I identify as 1.75 generation immigrant, you know, first, second, etc. Within the Japanese American community, a lot of the people I interviewed were Yonsei or Gosei, fourth or fifth generation American. And what Noel introduced in his interview that I'd never thought of before was, oh, we can think about this for what generation of American Buddhists are you? How many generations of your family have been Buddhist in America? And so Trailblazers, to me, this is a wonderful piece by Funi, Funichi called We've Been Here All Along, detailing some of the deep history of Japanese American Buddhists in the face of racial and religious discrimination and violence. And of course, as many of us know, the mass, vast majority actually of Japanese Americans were in turn the over 125,000 Japanese Americans who were incarcerated in concentration camps on U.S. soil, many of them U.S. citizens. Many of them were, the majority were Buddhist. And here you can see a photo of a Buddhist service being held at the Manzanar Relocation Center. I highly recommend Duncan Williams' book, American Sutra, which really movingly details many of the stories. This is a 17-year effort of research, translation, monumental like so much of Duncan's work, and a great inspiration for me, this particular book. And actually, more recently, for those of you who have a chance to go to Los Angeles, I really encourage you to go to the Japanese American National Museum, JANM, where they recently in- unveiled this incredible book. It's the first time we have the names of all of the incarceries in one book. And when you go, um, there's a reservation system so that we can, you know, control for the flow of people, but you're able to put a stamp next to one of the names. You don't need to have been a family member, yourself incarcerated or a family member. So the goal is to have 125,000 people really come and be with this mo- monument and this book of remembrance, this really sacred book. So this is at the uh, unveiling ceremony. So this Trailblazers chapter, and, you know, I, the people I interviewed were a little bit older than the young folks shown in this, uh, this video with the Reverend Tadao up in Takoma Buddhist Temple. But they really inspired me to think about what it might look like for Asian Americans to feel often a sense of belonging in the churches or temples that they grew up in. And sometimes people ask, why were they called churches? That's another history. But um, the Buddhist missions of North America changed their name to Buddhist Churches of America in the face of this intense um, intense discrimination and violence. So one can see it as an act of strategic assimilation, if you will. But these young adults had me thinking that they are continuing in this trailblazing spirit of trying to understand how to adapt as racial and religious minorities. It's not easy. The community itself is changing and diversifying. And there's ongoing questions in a time where religion in general, religious institutions are losing members though spirituality, I think it's still very much going strong, just these deeper questions of how do we honor these roots, this ethnic heritage, this cultural heritage, while also adapting as our membership becomes more diverse, as this country becomes more diverse. So a lot of our conversations that are represented in this part of the book explore some of those themes. And then part two of the book, Bridge Builders. There's actually quite a lot of my interviews since these are people whose parents were Buddhist and raised them Buddhist in the U.S. So Sri Lankan, Thai, Laotian, Burmese, Vietnamese, Khmer, Tibetan, Korean, Taiwanese, Chinese, and so forth. And of course, I was far from comprehensive. You know, I didn't set out to try to make sure I could be fully representative this book only really begins to scratch the surface. And my hope is that it's an invitation for us to listen to more stories, to surface more of them so that people can know that they're not alone. And I think unlike some of the, unlike many of the Jodo Shin Japanese-American Buddhists that I talked with, a lot of the second generation Buddhists I talked to didn't always feel a sense of belonging in the temples that they were raised in. And maybe that's because they didn't go very often, maybe only for the holidays. Often it was due to gaps in language, in culture, in belief and practice with their parents, wanting to understand what was happening, but not really having really a framework for understanding that. But these young adults also talked a lot about trying to bridge those gaps. And one of my favorite depictions of these attempts to bridge those gaps is Wanwan Bu's brilliant documentary, Youth Group. Here's this wonderful scene at Dharmasil Temple in the San Gabriel Valley. Um, there's this ritual of bathing the baby Buddha and the Buddha's birthday with this sweet tea. Actually, this is a ritual you'll also see at Shin Buddha's temples. And there, I just love this image where the younger people are sort of transfixed by um, a more elderly member of the community engaging in this ritual. So I really highly recommend this documentary as well to see a very vibrant depiction of a youth group that is run by youth members themselves. And another great documentary is by Mihiri Tilakaratne, who, like Noah, is one of the associate editors at Lions Roar who's focused on Asian American Buddhism. That itself is actually a quite a recent development, quite exciting. And here you see a Sri Lankan monk who's serving donuts to two younger children. This is at the temple, I believe, where Mihiri grew up. And this is sort of an inversion of what we're used to seeing, uh, lay people serving monastics the other way around. So yeah. this is also freely available on YouTube and recommend watching this documentary. So part three of the book, I focused on people like myself who weren't raised Buddhists. I decided to call them integrators after this quote by Holly Hisamoto, who said, Buddhists like myself face challenges in integrating and expressing multiple cultural identities as young American Buddhist, and Asian, yet I think we're all moving toward a more pluralistic world in which multiplicity of identity will be the norm. And indeed, this group was very multi-religious. Some people had been raised atheist or Zoroastrian, Hindu, Christian, Muslim, and so forth, or in mixed religion households. Uh, People in this group were very much multi-ethnic. Many of them were themselves multi-racial, multi-ethnic. So already had to integrate so many identities. And for some of them, you know, Buddhism didn't really replace the faith that they grew up with, but they had learned to sort of integrate and weave it in. And I put a picture of the East Bay Meditation Center here because several of the people I interviewed have found a sense of spiritual home here at the East Bay Meditation Center in Oakland, which has a people of color sangha and also an AAPI refuge group as well. So finally, part four of the book brings together the voices in the previous parts of the book, Refuge Makers. So, of course, this is very much inspired by Erin and the quote here, he says, while we still need to articulate our principles, relay our stories, protest injustice, and cast our votes, very relevant to, uh, to this season, we are most compelling when we are the very refuges we wish to see in this world. I love this blog post that Aaron created in celebration of AAPI Heritage Month in 2014. He found Asian American Buddhists and just put them into a collage. You know, we'll see here it's always interesting, actually, to take a pause and just see how many of these people do you recognize? Some of you will maybe recognize Duncan Williams, who I mentioned, his book, American Sutra. George Takei, sometimes people are surprised to learn that he was raised in the Shin Buddhist community as Buddhist. Um, there's Ruth Ozeki here, and there's others. You sort of get a cheat because all the names are here, so I should really have the text removed and then add the text later. But Erin had said there's still so much more to write about Buddhist Asian Americans, and I often reflect on this, how now even eight years later, that still feels so true. There are still so, so many untold stories, and Asian American Buddhists are still like anyone I think who occupies a place as a racial and religious minority, it can be a fraught place. It can be a fraught location. It can be hard to even come out as Buddhists for fear of discrimination or worse. So when Aaron got diagnosed with cancer in 2016, he started a new blog called be the refuge. And that is what of course eventually became the title of my book um, At that point, and especially after Aaron passed in 2017, it just didn't make sense to have the very academic volume. So I threw the whole thing out and I rewrote it from scratch. I took Ruth Ozaki's advice. And you know, Ruth has a wonderful new book out called The Book of Form and Emptiness. And in it, she really talks about how books are kind of their own karmic beings. So karma is this word, I think, bandied about a lot in popular culture, a bit like mindful. But at its very root, karma really just means action. And it's a reminder in Buddhism. And it's not just, you know, unique to Buddhist thought. Um, it's within other. Indian religions, Hinduism, broadly speaking, Indian philosophies, it's a concept that just understands that actions have effects and so on and so forth. And so books, I kind of think of as their own karmic beings that go out in the world. Uh, my book, I remember when I was picking book covers, I felt, oh gosh, that's a very bold cover. It's much more bold than someone as timid as me, whose happy place is to, you know, be at home under the covers of the, with a book, um, not, you know, out doing webinars like this, to be totally honest. <laughs> but this book has sort of, needing um, me as a chaperone, has propelled me into some surprising places for which I'm really grateful. I'm very happy to be spending this evening with all of you. Um, among the sort of many grassroots events that the book has spawned was a really fun online half-day retreat put on by the Young Buddhist Editorial, a group of young Jodo Shinshu Buddhists, multi-gen Buddhists, who wanted to do a retreat with a lot of different speakers, which we called Buddhist, building Buddhist communities around the four parts of the book. So Funi and I talked a bit about Trailblazers since Funi had written that wonderful piece. We've been here all long and. For the Bridge Builder section, Wanwan and Hiri, whose documentaries I told you about. Tanu, who grew up Sri Lankan Buddhist, the educator. And Tani, who has a really wonderful piece out recently in Lion's Roar about her own personal experience, actually, of being the victim of anti-Asian violence and how Buddhist principles really helped her on this journey of kind of healing, I think, healing from that moment. Um, it's a really beautiful piece that I highly recommend. So if you just look up Tani's name in Lion's Roar, you'll find that piece. For the integrator section, we had Juliet and Karan, Juliet Boast, Karan Cross, Elaine Lai, David Wu, some other friends who had were not all raised Buddhists, or in Elaine's case was raised Buddhist, but kind of didn't really had a reclamation or a reconnection with it later in life. And speaking of David, one thing I wanted to mention was something that a group that he's a part of, Uh, Burning Pride Meditation that he helped found. This is a group of Asian Americans in recovery based in the Los Angeles area. And they put together a really powerful Buddhists for Black Lives Matter march back in 2021. And I think over 500 people attended as they marched. So there are a couple articles about that. Um, And finally, I'll just say in we had a refuge baker section as well, Devin Matsumoto, who is the found one of the founders of Young Buddhist editorial who uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I was up at San Mateo Buddhist Temple, helping out with a class. A local college class called Buddhism in the Bay Area, where they're taught by Trent Walker, um, where they're visiting Buddhist temples as part of their learning. And Devon got installed as a minister's assistant, a certified minister's assistant. So it was very special to be able to be part of that ceremony. And Felix, who is uh, part of the Dharma Seal Youth Group that One One's documentary is about, led a wonderful meal chant. So I know this is a lot of names, a lot of pictures, but you know, as I show them to you now, I'm just continually struck by how interconnected the Asian American Buddhist community is. We used to actually joke about Aaron that he knew all Buddhists, that we were all just so interconnected. And he always just had a gift of bringing people together. And I think that knowing that, Juxtaposed with things like the vandalization of Buddhist temples is, of course, very jarring. It's so painful to have read about. This was back in late 2020, and the where six Buddhist temples were vandalized in Little Saigon in Southern California. And then, of course, ongoing news of attacks against Asian Americans, against elders here. when Kunwicha Ratanapakti unfortunately died from injury sustained after being pushed in San Francisco on a walk. And this picture is taken at Wat Nagara Dhamma, so where I and my partner Trent have been to in the past. Um, after we saw this piece, we went to the temple to pay our respects. And just these kinds of incidences, you know, I never would have learned could have predicted, right, that be the refuge would have been born into a time of rising anti-Asian violence and awareness about it. And it was, I think, when we chat, this was in late February, and then not long after that the Higashi Honganji Temple in Los Angeles, which was founded in 1904, uh, was also um, vandalized. The community quickly banded together that these stone lanterns were broken, but they quickly banded together to repair the temple. And then I think it was just a few days after that, that the Atlanta area shootings happened. So in the midst of this, you know, when I'd written the book, it was during a time when Black Lives Matter was beginning to rise, but my interviews were now quite a long time ago. And so my interviews weren't necessarily talking about it all the time. If we interviewed you know, I think a new set of interviews needs to happen, a new book, new, new stories need to come to light. But after the Atlanta shootings happened, I think something really shifted for me and to understand the kind of fabric that Be the Refuge was entering into. Um During this time, me, myself, uh, Funi, who I mentioned, and Duncan as well, we started talking about creating a National Buddhist Memorial for Asian American ancestors. Just a response that centered ceremony and ritual as a way to heal and address the kinds of hurt and shock or numbness or fear that so many of us were feeling. Mm-hmm. One of the victims of the shooting, Yong Yu, was Korean and Buddhist, and she had two sons. Here's a video of them talking about their mother and who had raised them to be very proudly biracial in this country as the sons of a Korean mother and a Black father. Um, So 49 days after the shootings on May 4th, We held the May We Gather ceremony, and you can go to www.maywegather.org if you're interested in viewing both a short 10-minute video of the ceremony or the entire ceremony itself, which was 90 minutes long. We were able to gather about 49 monastics to come together in a multi-lineage and multi-ethnic, multi-racial ceremony of healing I know I don't have too much time. I want to make sure we have a really ample time for questions, which are always my favorite parts of these events. But I'll just show some of the images from the ceremony here. I might not go into too much in-depth explanation of each one. This was Robert remembering the moment when he found out that his mother had been killed. And this is Reverend Shomio Kojima, who did the beautiful calligraphy on these masks, which say homage to the Three Jewels, and led a procession into the temple. Duncan and Funi, my co-organizers. At the altar, we created six memorial tablets for Asian American Buddhists who have been killed due to racial violence. And also importantly, we had a central tablet for all beings who have lost their lives due to racial and religious animus, as a reminder that our stories are very much interconnected, our lives are very much interconnected. We made offerings of light, of incense, of chanting in multiple languages, and the event itself was featured, as you can see, in multiple languages. Here's a Chinese newspaper writing about the event, noting these were the six speakers who spoke about the six paramitas, which are kind of um, sort of perfections in Buddhism, perfections such as wisdom, patience, diligence, and so forth. And, you know, I realized earlier when I talked about this event being 49 days after the shootings, part of that significance is that in Buddhist thought and many Buddhist traditions, that's a very significant Memorial Day marker. It's actually the seventh seven day marker after the passing of a loved one. And there are other ceremonies on a hundred days, one year, three year, five years, and so forth. So we want, we're thinking about that kind of ritual calendar and though it was very difficult to pull together all the elements of this ceremony when a time when vaccines hadn't fully rolled out, when COVID was still very much present. um, We were incredibly fortunate that all the karmic circumstances did come together. So many people so generously just gave so much of their time and effort to make this beautiful ceremony possible. James Okumura made this ceramic lotus and we had people paint the cracks in the lotus. The lotus is here, the cracks um, recall the Japanese art of kintsugi or gold joinery. The idea being that if you have for example a teacup and it breaks, I think in this culture we would probably just throw it away and buy a new one on Amazon maybe. But In Japan, there's an art, a practice of carefully gluing the pieces back together and then actually gilding the cracks in gold. And for us, this was such a powerful metaphor for how to respond to instances of racial violence, not to turn away, not to pretend it didn't happen, but to actually name and to actually witness and honor, listen and fully not flinch and realize that this is part of the story this is part of our history this is part of the truth the reality and that then healing is necessary and together something beautiful can actually rise from these rituals from these ceremonies from these gatherings where we can collectively join to name and then touch into and then hopefully begin to mend our hurts so while people processed in singularly, they processed out in pairs holding this white thread, a paritta thread. Um, this, if you've ever been to a Theravada Buddhist temple, will probably be familiar to you. Sometimes you'll see a bracelet that's white or red, um, tied around people's wrists. And this is something that monastics have chanted over, blessed. So they're really, threads of protection, and we had it tied to the Buddha altar and held between people's palms as a symbol, again, of our interconnectedness. Here's some media features, and here's the website and our logo. And lotuses um, are also a very important symbol within Buddhism, a symbol of awakening. And what's quite interesting about the flower of the lotus is that it can only grow in muddy waters. It can't grow actually in a pure clean pond. And so that's a really powerful metaphor for this samsaric world we live in that we suffering is sort of inevitable. Um, but out of that kind of muck of the world, there can arise moments of real clarity and awakening. So in closing, I wanted to share a little bit about something really quite unexpected that has come out of Be the Refuge. Um there's a, a uh, at Phillips Academy Andover, a boarding school on the East Coast in Andover, Massachusetts, uh, there's a program that started recently called The Workshop. And here, several teachers really advocated hard to change up the usual structure of high school classes, right? I mean, probably you remember, I just remember being very sleep deprived and, you know, one class after another 45 minutes or so, so many classes. So the students in the workshop are able to drop all of their usual classes. And for the entire spring term of senior year, they can focus on one of several interdisciplinary and collaborative and experiential classes. And so my co-teacher, Andy Husio, and I decided to create a project called listening to the Buddhists in our backyard. And actually, originally, this was going to be Buddhist in Boston, but Boston is a little ways from Andover, if you've ever been there. And we actually realized there were so many Buddhist communities just in our backyard within a 15, 10, 15 mile radius. There were easily a dozen Buddhist temples, Cambodian, uh, Thai, Lao, Vietnamese, Chinese, a Nichiren temple. And as part of our immersive spring together, we started out with this eight-day, really intensive, just visiting uh, one temple after another. So this photo was taken at Zhuo One with the wonderful Dr. Tum Tran, who unfortunately is not in the photo, I think, because she's taking this photo. This is their beautiful altar. But um, I wanted to share about this project because people often ask at book talks, you know, what can we do? And for me, I learned so much from these students. Um, I think far more than I could teach them. I also learned so much by visiting these Buddhist communities. So realizing Buddhism isn't just what we see on the glossy covers of, you know, mainstream English language magazines. Buddhism is right here in our backyards. As one of my interviewees put it, Asian American Buddhists are everywhere, we're just not a trending topic, and there's so much generosity and wisdom at these temples. Our students, many of whom, most of whom just didn't actually, they would say they didn't really have any background in Buddhism. Some of them had a little bit of family connection, but they were so blown away by the kind of generosity they received at these temples they were struck by the ways that some of these temples had youth groups that were trying to understand how to adapt Buddhism to the next generation. And they're, to me, a really powerful model of what it looks like. And it doesn't just have to be Buddhist communities, right? Who are the people in our local communities whom we're not listening to? When we think of Buddhism, do we think about um Right. Do we think about just meditation or do we think about ancient texts or do we think it's only located in, um, you know, in a textbook? And it's not really located in living people. When we think about Hinduism, are we thinking only about yoga studios, right? This gets into complicated questions of appropriation. And there's so much, you know, a whole other talk would have to address these issues. But I think a lot of young people are grappling with these issues, issues at this intersection of race and religion slash spirituality, issues of identity, of representation, and then of wanting to be in just relationships, meaningful relationships of reciprocity, wanting to be learning in ways that are meaningful, not just doing things for performance sake or to get a good grade. Um, so I thought I would and with something actually that the students themselves created at the end of the term, they created a lot of really wonderful work. If you want to check it out, you can go to localbuddhists.org. The website was something they created. And I, in the past few days, have been updating it. Um, it's taken me much longer, Luddite, that I am. So I'm not very good with social, with social media. But our students very adeptly put this website together. And it showcases some of the writing they did, the blog posts temple profiles they did for the Pluralism Project out of Harvard, and it also has a recording of their final presentation, which arguably is more interesting than the presentation you've just listened to. But as an opening for their presentation, they did this very beautiful land and lineage acknowledgement, and they were inspired actually by Zhuotongban, the temple that you just saw a picture of, um, and here among the many inspirations with many sort of Buddhist masters who've inspired this community are Thich Nhat and his community of Plum Village, which engages in a practice called the Five Earth Touching Ceremony. And what the students did was they took the Five Earth Touching Ceremony and then adapted it for their presentation. So, I'll read it now and invite you, if you feel so moved or comfortable, to participate in the practice with me, people here in the present and people watching this recording in the future. um, For the acknowledgement of land, I'll just name the land that I'm on. But you might want to think in your head of the Native peoples of the land that you're on for that section. In gratitude, I bow to this land and all of the ancestors who made it available. And if you wish, you may bow and touch the earth. I see that I am whole, protected and nourished by this land and all of the living beings who have been here and made life easy and possible for me through all their efforts. I see all those who have made this country a refuge for people of so many origins. I see myself touching ancestors of Native American origin, particularly the Chochenyo-speaking Ovoni peoples, who have lived on this land for such a long time and know the ways to live in peace and harmony with nature, protecting the land and its inhabitants. We invite you to reflect on the land
0: you're occupying and acknowledge your presence on it.
2: We also want to acknowledge the lineage in our knowledge of Buddhism.
1: From the oral traditions that shaped the early history of Buddhism to the local Chinese, Vietnamese, Cambodian, Lao, Thai and Tibetan communities that maintained these traditions in the Merrimack Valley. These teachings have traveled a long way and passed through the hearts of countless individuals who have devoted parts of their lives to making this knowledge accessible. We invite you to think about your own religious
0: and spiritual lineage.
1: We also want to reflect on those who have shaped us as students, including our parents and caregivers, even before taking our first steps into a kindergarten classroom. We would like to acknowledge the mentors who have facilitated moments of processing, reflection, and growth throughout our most recent academic journey. We're here because of the endless generosity of our parents, caregivers, teachers, and educators, and as we graduate and move on to the next phase of our lifelong commitment to learning, we will continue to carry the lessons we've learned from our mentors, including a number of people in this room. We invite you to remember the kindness of parents, mentors, teachers that have facilitated your learning and becoming. So thank you all so much for your careful listening. I am going to turn off the share screen. Um, This Land and Lineage Acknowledgement is also available on the Listen to Local Buddhists website. And Just as an addendum, since I know some people in the audience might be academics or might uh, be interested in this, Apari, uh, the Asian Pacific American Religions Research Initiative, right now has a call for grant proposals for research grants and working grants. So There's a few more weeks before the deadline, but for those who are interested in working on a project, that might have creative as well as educational and scholarly components, um, please do check out the website. And Apari really, has gotten a lot of funding and I think is eager to distribute these grants to seed new projects. So just wanted to do a little pitch for that for people out there. So I'm going to stop share and return. Thank you all again.
0: Uh thank you very much sensing for a actually very interesting and meaningful <laughs> <difficult> discussion. <laughs> uh we have uh, let's see uh, let's go with the Q&A box first. Uh one of our good friends Frank Gomez has a question for you. Uh are Buddhists supporting or participating in, in any self-defense training initiatives or awareness campaigns to uh counter prejudice and violence, you know, during this time of uh Sure.
1: Yeah, thanks, Frank. Um, I think yes is the short answer. Um, uh, let's see. Um, I think they're certainly su- both supporting and participating. Yeah, I, I know that there's. I, know, I think it's not called Hollaback anymore; it has a new name. But a lot of people have done those bystander trainings. You know, I think people of all different backgrounds, but it's among them. Tsuru for solidarity. T S U R U. It's not self-defense per se, but they're doing some really incredible work around um, Black reparations, along with work at the border detention centers. A lot of the people in Sioux are actually Japanese American Buddhists uh, who have a family connection to incarceration in the camps. And, you know, this kind of relates to what I said about may we gather how so many of these issues are interconnected. So again, I would say like Buddhists are a minority and there's both initiatives that come out of Buddhism, but I think many of our initiatives, we want to make them as a as possible, not just for Buddhists, but certainly I think at core to Buddhism is an awareness that there is suffering, but also th- the importance of finding ways to alleviate that suffering individually and also on a collective level. And so, yes, um, I think the stereotype I think angry Asian Buddhist, right? That particular name is very striking because we don't tend to think of Buddhists; we think of them as maybe passive or not. Acting. And I'd say the flip side of this too, like certainly Buddhists, like people of all religious stripes are very much capable of enacting violence. And that's not just something that happens in Asia in places like Burma or Sri Lanka, but happens here in the US as well. So I think many Buddhists are grappling with the ways, you know, I know many Asian American Buddhists are also grappling with the ways that what does it mean for ourselves, for example, as immigrants to be on unceded territory on stolen land. So I think there's a lot of really interesting conversations and reflections. Buddhism, a tradition that also, I think, is very connected to land. And also, of course, indigenous traditions are very connected to land. Um, yeah, so that's a really rich question, actually. Thank you, Frank.
0: All right, and he thanks you too. Um, Al Lee has their hand raised, so I'm going to allow them to speak. uh Al, if you can unmute. Yep, there you go.
2: Hi, so um, I'm based in New York, and I am a second-generation Korean uh, American, and um, I'm married to a fourth-generation uh, Taishanese American, and we have such a, a long history of uh, experiences of uh, being, um, oppressed, if you will, as Asian Americans, even today. And, um, I really, really just want to thank you for having this book out there. Cause I really felt like having this book was such a place for me that just, I didn't really feel like I, I was ever like acknowledged, uh, as a Buddhist American, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, one thing that, uh, I feel like is really, um, it's tough still for me is um this issue around the swastika. And I don't know if you actually addressed this in the book, because I only got a third mm-hmm. into the book. But no. I um I, I really struggle with the swastika thing because you know, I have a very strong identity of Buddhism and mm. um I oh my god, I'm so sorry. I'm like so No Don't apologize. Yeah. I wasn't expected to be so emotional about it, but You know, like, my mother handed me down her swastika golden necklace, and I have her her ring, and Mm -hmm. I'm able to wear the ring because it doesn't have the swastika symbol on it. Mm -hmm. It just has the Omani Padmehum script on it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like, I just feel like there's still such an oppression still today where Mm -hmm. we can't, like, identify truly as buddhist when i was a child my parents i remember um they put up a buddhist symbol that had the swastika in it on their front door which is really mm-hmm. common actually for us to you know have the swastika in our buddhist um you know identity and our neighbors called the cops on us mm-hmm. and this is when we were growing up in new york city and, and when i was working um, I used to work at the United Nations and even mm-hmm. at the United Nations, I tried to wear my mother's necklace that she gave mm-hmm. to me. And even there, I got called into the office by my supervisor. and mm-hmm. was told that, you know, I couldn't wear my necklace. And I just mm-hmm. felt like there was no place for me as a mm-hmm. Buddhist American to even wear something that is such a, a deep part of our identity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like when my parents went um, on welfare, well, they didn't actually, but when they went bankrupt and we qualified mm. for welfare, you know, we moved into the Buddhist monastery and mm. like a huge part of my identity. And I just feel like um, so annoyed and actually really angry mm. myself mm. because um, I I feel like I where I live now, um, it's a fairly middle-class, upper middle-class area in Westchester. And mm. I see like, all these like white people, like with Buddhist statue, Buddha statues all over their lawns, mm. and you know I make comments like, and I ask them like, oh, are you Buddhist? And none of them are Buddhist. They say things like, mm. no, I'm Jewish. No, I'm Christian. And I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. do you guys know the history of Asian American Buddhists? And mm-hmm. you know they they don't even care. You know like,
1: yeah.
2: And so like these groups that oppressed my identity as a buddhist or like you know for generations in america like they still don't allow me to wear swastika and when i actually just a couple just yesterday actually um went to a neighbor's house to pick i never met this woman before but she she had something in um that i she was offering and i went to go pick it up and she had like Four Buddha statues all over her property because she's a yoga instructor, mm. and, um, and then when I talked to her about like, oh, these are different Buddhas. This is like Sakamoni Buddha, and like, oh, I see you have like all different types of Buddhas from different like sects. And she like didn't even really care about that. It was just mm. like such a thing. And then when I told her about how important, um, you know, like acknowledging like Buddhists as Asian Americans in America is and Mm -hmm. how like we have the swastika and like, we're still not allowed to use it. Mm -hmm. You know, instead of hearing me, she just said, well, you can understand the Jewish perspective, right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't about like, why do we have to be the ones to always compromise? Mm -hmm. Like I was like, yeah, but I don't think one group being oppressed just like, you know, means that equates that another group should continue to be oppressed the Buddhist swastika was around for thousands of years. Why do we have to be the one to stop that just because something else that happened to another group, like Mm. 60 years, 70 years ago. Right. I don't know. Anyway, I, I'm really like still struggling with that. And Mm. I don't know how you feel about that, but I think this is like something that really needs to be addressed. Like why, why are, People cherry picking what we are allowed to use as part of Buddhism, and what we cannot use. Mm.
1: Thank you so much for sharing. Did you did you say your name was? Wait, I see it says Ali. It's okay. You don't need to share your name. It's not. I just, yeah. <laughs> no worries. I just wanted to say I had thought maybe you were Aaron's parents because actually that's his parents' name. So maybe they're not on this call. But oh, really? oh my gosh, thank you for um, thank you just for sharing so honestly and vulnerably of your own experience you know i think for in in case anyone doesn't um know this i think the it's an ancient hindu symbol it looks like a swastika but it's actually not a swastika it's if you look at the directionality of it but unfortunately because of the nazi appropriation of that symbol and what it stands for you're absolutely right that it's very uncommon in the u.s context like sometimes at buddhist temples you might see it on a buddhist statue um where people obviously understand the context. I think, I don't know if I have an answer to this, but I just really want to acknowledge and name your pain. I think especially because something like that necklace from your mom must be so incredibly precious for all that it means. You know, it's a family heirloom, it's a family inheritance. It's part of our inheritance and lineage. And it's very painful not to be able to wear in in a country that purports to be religiously free not to be able to express that freedom with something as simple as wearing something that means so much to you so I just want to say that I'm really sorry for all those really um, painful angering you know all of those emotions I i resonate right and the buddha statues a friend and i were just saying she's saying well my neighbor has a buddha statue out and they put a mask on the buddha, on the buddha statue in their lawn and it like the mask kind of looks like a pig's mask. like it's just it's and she's sort of snapped a photo and it's like yeah why is it that asian things bodies objects like you know ann chang brilliantly writes about in ornamentalism why is it that we're decorative and kind of disposable it's it's like, you know, we could be here all evening, we could have a retreat, we could be talking about this for a long time. Um, I have an article that I co-wrote with Trent around cultural appropriation, we called it the many faces of cultural appropriation, where we're grappling a little bit with these issues, it's in Buddha Dharma. And I don't know, again, I'm, I don't know if I have a satisfactory answer, but just that I maybe i hope you maybe you could write a piece about this and maybe share your story i suspect that you're not alone in feeling this way um and i think what you've just shared is really powerful and that um yeah that i think others would benefit to to hear to hear from your story thank you again for sharing
0: uh uh, just in terms of logistics in terms of the publication of this book like i mean Mm -hmm did you uh, have any difficulties in sort of, sort of get finding a publisher you know and then like when like how did you well you did a thesis in the beginning first right but then right. like you know how how hard was it to just turn it into an actual book you know narrative and everything like that
1: yeah, I mean, I hint at it in the book itself, right? It was very difficult. I mean, I think from my first interview to publication, it took nine years, so it felt very difficult, the fact that I had to rewrite the book, but especially the publication phase itself, Um, you know, I publishing is always hard. I think, like, it's a very competitive market, right? Um, But I think I would venture to say for people of color, for Asian Americans, for women of color, it's... That much harder. And so I tried with some Buddhist publishers and sort of got the feedback that I'm not a famous Buddhist teacher. This is very true. I am not a famous Buddhist teacher. I am just a lay person. Um, You know, I think within academic presses, I didn't have a PhD. So it was kind of not making a lot of headway. I did, the book actually did go through peer review took a very long time and one reviewer really liked the book one reviewer um, effectively killed the book and in retrospect I think that reviewer because without that process I wouldn't have gotten to this point today to write something that is being taught in college classrooms as well as high school classrooms but also being used in local communities and so I often just say like what kept me going was Aaron, people like Aaron, spiritual friendship like this in many ways it's just a book about spiritual friendship these labors of love these long-term projects I think in retrospect I can connect the dots like the rejections were you know I get it on the pu- parts of publishers they can only take so many risks where they feel they can only take so much risk but what really hurt was when people would say like oh there's no audience for this book right and yes it's a small niche book I ultimately found a small non-profit publisher to publish it but part of the point is like well, if the publishing industry is 90% white at all of these different levels, like, and what kind of audiences have you cultivated? There are so many untapped audiences that really need to hear these stories. And so that was really frustrating because it was one of those chicken and egg issues, right? Like, you're not famous, you can't get published. It's like, well, I don't think anyone will know who I am if I, you know, like, unless I write something or, And anyway, of course, ultimately, it's not what the book is about, right? I'm, I still find it weird that my book is on the cover, you know, I think about how Buddhist texts actually, they're passed down to us by generations and generations of people who copied. Often anonymous people. Sometimes the texts themselves, we don't even know who wrote them. But like this book is such a collaborative effort. And it just so happens that in our society, we have these things called books that are products in a marketplace. And that's how people find them and that's how they circulate. So there's this concept of Buddhism called upaya, which is sometimes translated as skillful means. So if it somehow helps people to connect and realize they're not as alone, then okay, I'm glad this book is out there. And if it helps to have my name on there, then yes, but it really was a collaborative effort. And yeah, it really was a long publication journey. (laughs) For people out there who are writing, don't give up. (laughs) Yeah. Keep find people who will support you, encourage you to continue. Yeah. Cool
0: um in terms of uh well you're you're in the bay area uh, and your your particular group is pretty large right you know that and stuff right uh, what what do you know much about sort of the east coast side is is, is mm-hmm. uh, are you is the east and west coast connected at all uh, you know do you communicate yeah
1: yeah, I mean, because of this listening to the Buddhists in our backyard project at Andover, Massachusetts, starting to learn more about Buddhism, on the East Coast. You know, I was in New York, actually just popped over spontaneously for a weekend in August because there was a really great group of young adults there who grew up going to a Buddhist summer camp in upstate New York. So they put on a retreat. I've like helped co-lead a workshop for that and also just participated. Um and then right in Andover itself. So I, I think it's actually your question. I could answer it in multiple ways because I think one valid critique of this book is it's still kind of California centrics, even though people I talked to had maybe lived in other parts of the U S you know, some of them were transplants to California. I think people find resonances like in diaspora Asians in Europe or South Africa have written to me to say they resonate with kind of the themes in the book. And I think there's a way in which what's happening locally and regionally is unique. I think just. My sense sometimes is, I, I don't know. I don't know, like, what the level of, let's say, Asian American literacy or Buddhist literacy, as I like to call it, in in the broader East Coast in general. And then New York, of course, is very particular. There's a class at Union Theological Seminary called Religions in the City. And I know they go to visit some of the Buddhist sites, um, the, inter-religious, is it the Interreligious Council of New York. I know there's a website that actually lists a lot of Buddhist temples. So I'd like to learn more. You know, it's hard since I'm not, based out there, but I think many of the stories people can feel are familiar, whether they're stories of, I think, celebration and intimacy when it's spending time with other Asian American Buddhists, just feeling really heard and seen, just taking care of each other in different ways, having shared reference points, Um, or whether it's stories, you know, like the one we just heard that are more painful stories, people talking about when I grew up in school and if we ever had a lesson on Buddhism, it never looked like the Buddhism I grew up with, or it never looked like the Buddhism my parents, or people was saying, like, I got told I was going to go to hell because I was wearing a Buddha necklace. And this was growing up, or even teachers would say that or say, like, that's not real Buddhism, you know, there's a lot of those painful stories. And I think, sadly, as Catherine Jin Lun's recent book, um, Heathen, it's a really fantastic read, um, as well as Tati Joshi's book, White Christian Privilege, pairing those two together, I think it's just an important reminder of how deep and entrenched white Christian privilege and supremacy go in this country. So anything really that's about racial and religious minorities in this country, I think there is a way in which this resonates, right? Just uh, facilitated a board event for Sadhana, which is a great group, and they're kind of based—they're national, but they also have a New York. Is a lot of their on-the-ground setting, and they're a coalition of progressive Hindus doing really amazing work. And I've been struck by how some of the dynamics that are happening in their community also feel resonant for the Asian American Buddhist community. So, kind of like one of those yes and no sort of answers to your question. But thank you; it's a really thoughtful question.
0: Uh, we have a question from Alexander Ho. Um, they're saying. It might be a little bit simplistic, but uh, what's the meaning behind the word refuge in your mm.
1: title? Yeah, thanks, Alexandra. That's a great question. I think it's not at all simplistic. Um, so there's a concept in Buddhism called the three refuges, and this idea of we take refuge, and so in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. So let me just briefly explain the Buddha. We can think of as the historical figure of the Buddha, or a religious figure, or you know any figure who really Gives us spiritual motivation that way, a sort of symbol of awakening. The Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, the Buddhist teachings, and the Sangha is sort of the community of Buddhist practitioners. And then here, refuge actually has a bit of a um, Buddhist, I think sometimes it's just often translated in Buddhist settings as refuge, but I think it is what it sounds like. Like when we say we take refuge, it's sort of like I find a place of safety or feel a sense of home right? So when I, when Aaron says be the refuge, what I hear him saying is like, what helps you feel at ease at home, you know, right now in this moment, in this body you're in, what helps you just create a sense of safety and yeah, help you feel a kind of grounding and settledness. Um, and then how can you, what helps you do that, you know, for other people too. And I think often we start with ourselves because it's hard to be, refuge or create refuge for other people when we ourselves are say very anxious or very distracted or just extremely unsettled. So I think what I loved about Erin's invitation slash invocation slash challenge is this like, sometimes that looks like just oh, I need to sleep more. (laughs) Like sometimes it's very simple, right? And that's the first step. Or sometimes it looks like, yeah, setting down the phone and listening to a friend. Or sometimes it looks like marching with a group of people. Or it looks like different things for different people, right? I often joke, the book does not say go meditate now. (laughs) It says be the refuge in whatever way that looks like and means for you in whatever way is like creatively meaningful for you, spiritually meaningful for you. So I hope that that answers your question
0: alexander says thanks that was very very helpful sure. uh well i myself must confess i mean um i i i guess i classify myself as a buddhist um oh. my mother practices at home she does like uh praying rituals during the at lunchtime and the evening time right mm. and you know, reading the script uh the sutra and stuff yeah, but then uh you know i i i guess i could i kind of think in my head i'm a lazy buddhist like because mm. i'm not doing that stuff you know i mean how 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 much stuff do you need to do in order to be a buddhist i mean (laughs) just just thinking oh okay i'm a buddhist okay i believe in buddha and stuff like that that's good enough or do you have to do the the incense the bowing the reading of those you know going to the temples and stuff like that i mean uh amongst my own friends uh i I mean i guess we talk about it and stuff like that but then Mm -hmm. i my own close circle of friends is not really a true buddhist right mm-hmm. but uh, at the institute ourselves we do uh, host a, a group of buddhists who come every thursday mm-hmm. uh to you know read sutras and stuff mm-hmm. like that but that's mostly done in mandarin or cantonese right so then there's like uh you know i myself could seek out information too right in, in mm-hmm. english right but the do those yes. two worlds mesh together you know reading in english and then all those sutras and temples are sort of, you know, in, in Chinese, you know.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, just last night I was listening to a talk with Reverend Heng Shi at the City of 10,000 Buddhists, which is here in Northern California, Yukai. It's a very big Buddhist community. And he's talking his talk was on translation as spiritual practice. So he was talking about the importance of translation, of building that bridge. So I think, like, do those worlds bridge? I think sometimes, but it is, of course, hard, right? I think it's especially hard when many temples are started by immigrant populations for the first generation so there's a place of refuge where people can speak your language where people you know under can do the rituals and practices whether it's holding funerals or celebrating these different new years right um and I think a lot of especially in the second generation the uh, bridge builders part of the book a lot of young adults do ask that like there can be a feeling of maybe imposter syndrome or sort of like feeling like well I don't feel like I'm as devout as my parents were I know as much about you know, Buddhism as them. And to which I would respond like with a kind of compassion and gentleness. It's like, of course, like you weren't raised in that community, in that context, right? Like how could you in a frankly white Christian Uh, dominant slash supremacist culture. How would you have maintained those languages and those culture, those religious practices? And I, but I think what's also very painful is then there's, they're like looking vertically at their elders, feeling like, Oh, I'm not an adequate Buddhist or like, I'm not a good Buddhist, et cetera. But then looking horizontally and like at peers, for example, or just at the English language mediascape and not seeing Asians there. Janie Romero calls this Asian religion without Asians. Like it's very jarring. It can be very jarring to go say into a predominantly white Zen center and see no Asian languages, right? Like to see no Asian people, maybe a statue is all that you see. So I think people are trying to understand like, wait, is my form of Buddhism even valid? And so I would say like, I am not an arbiter of anyone Just you know, like, are you Buddhist or not? I would say like, yes, like to me, people who have an affinity for Buddhism, I think are Buddhist. I, you know, I relate to them as people who are very much part of the Buddhist community or fabric. They're teachers to me, right? I mean, really everyone is a teacher to me try to hold that as a Buddhist practice. But I don't like to do, I don't know, a meditation resume check to say like, have you done this many retreats? Okay, (laughs) then you're a Buddhist, right? Or not. Um, I think... I think it's complicated. I mean, like, it's like any religion, like, is there some Christianity litmus test? Like, do you have to be a certain level? I'm sure there are people who will engage in those kinds of like, you need to be X, Y, and Z, and then you're in. Um, I prefer to allow people who call themselves Buddhist just, you know, not to like argue with them about that, but I, I hear you. I think like sometimes I'll hear people say I have an affinity for Buddhism or the way I talked about it was, I did not want to be out as a Buddhist for a really long time. And I think I was just afraid people would be like, you're not an adequate Buddhist or like, oh, but you don't know, I don't know all the sutras or et cetera, et cetera. And then I think I remember someone recently saying this, I think in the, um, in the Hindu context among the sadhana group, but they were saying like, so if we don't sometimes make a, make a claim or make a statement just to say like, I am Buddhist or I practice Buddhism, or this part of my affinity, if we're totally closeted about it, in some ways we're seeding a very important space, right? In the Hindu context, you're saying, we're seeding the space to like Hindutva, to right-wing nationalist Hindus, if we're not willing to speak at all. And I think for me, that's always really stuck out to me. Like, do we want to see the space entirely open only to, you know, and I always have to like make this statement like, that I think sometimes my writing comes across as maybe harsh towards white convert Buddhists. So I, that's not, that is not my intention, but I think like it's painful, for example, to meet communities where people have been meditating for three decades and they have never, they did not realize Buddhism has been in this country since the 19th century. They've never thought about Asian American Buddhists ever. It just hasn't crossed their mind when they see these high school students, they're astounded. They're like, Oh, oh, I guess I could visit this local temple, but of course it's intimidating because there's these gaps, right, in culture and language. But for me, what gets problematic is when we say this is true Buddhism and this is inauthentic Buddhism. To me, that's a kind of violence, actually, um, on many levels. And the extent to which I want to understand Buddhism as this really vast family tree. Like there's a lot of branches, there's a lot of leaves, but there are these common roots, right? Hence refuge in the title. Like, is there a way we cannot engage in that to be of like, let me just saw off this branch because I don't like what they're doing or I don't agree. I think um, that's when I start getting fearful. Um, and so partly Be the Refuge hopes to be a sort of intervention against those types of violences.
0: Uh, I want to thank Chengxing again for a wonderful presentation. Uh, to purchase a copy of Be the Refuge, you can find the link on Chengxing's talk page on our website. Uh, the book is available uh, on, in, on, for, on paperback for $17.95 from Penguin's uh, website and other various bookstores available, too. Um, please join us next Friday, October 28th, for our lecture with Vina Orden on her essay, Black Henry, Charting New Ways Forward in Filipino History, uh, which was featured recently in CUNY Forum Volume 9, which the Institute publishes. And we're also co-sponsoring a book talk with uh, Queensborough Community College on Wednesday, October 26th, on a new graphic memoir by Laura Gao called Messy Roots, uh, the uh, a memoir of uh, a Wuhanese American. Uh, this lecture is part of the Harriet and Kenneth Comfortberg uh, Holocaust Center and National Endowment for Humanities Colloquium entitled Trauma, Remembrance, and Compassion. Thank you very much, um, Chen Xing, uh, for this great talk. Um, I hope folks purchase copies of the book and let other people know about it. And yeah, um with that, everyone enjoy your weekend. Remember to be upstander if you see a fellow person in need. And good night. Thank you very much.